Hi, I'm Josephine Hughes. I'm the mother of two transgender daughters who came out in their teens and early 20s. I told my own stories in series one of Gloriously Unready. And in season two, I'm finding out more about transgender people's experiences. Because as I adapted to having transgender daughters, it helped me a lot to get to know transgender people. In this series, I ask, what's it like to come out as transgender to a world that is not always ready for you? And how can you ever be ready to tell the people that you love that you're not the person they think you are? Today's guest is Max Siegel. Max describes himself as a career queer. He shares his transition story via social media and also as a public speaker. Max uses an approach of honesty, vulnerability and lived experience to allow his audiences to understand how it feels to be an LGBTQ plus person in the world today. So I've known Max via LinkedIn, really, and it's just so lovely to meet him face to face today in the recording studio. So I'm going to talk a little bit more to introduce Max myself. But Max, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are yeah. and what you do? Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Max Siegel. My pronouns are they, he. I am a proud trans man, speaker, content creator, activist man with fingers in many pies who will do pretty much what anyone will pay me for but mostly uh, if I'm at a dinner party I tell people I am an LGBTQ inclusion consultant. Right and that's how I've, I've sort of seen you on LinkedIn is you... Yes my professional presence. Yeah you talk a lot there don't you about what being trans is about and some really I do encourage anybody who's who's listening, if, if you're on LinkedIn, to to follow Max there because it's so insightful and learning about Max's life and also some of, some of the things that people say to you as well have been sort of quite interesting to read about and, and what you mm. face as you're as you're talking about um, inclusion. It's quite personal, but I wondered if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your journey and how you how you worked out you were trans and, and where, where it's taken you. Yeah. I feel like there's either a really long version of this story or a really short one. Um, I'm going to try and hit it somewhere in the middle. So I came out as a queer woman at the age of somewhere between 18 and 21, depending on who you were in my life at that time. Contextually, I grew up in rural South Devon. So every stereotype in the book, I could literally see cows when I woke up in the morning. I didn't really know what a gay person was. I didn't know anything about queer identities. The only visibility that I had was very limited TV. So I was born in 1992. So, you know, I'm, I'm coming out and growing up in kind of the early 2000s. Very, very limited visibility. I used to watch the L word on my computer that I wasn't supposed to have on after 11pm. I used to watch that at 3am in the morning when I wasn't supposed to be. And, you know, I'm very much the internet generation, kind of MySpace, Tumblr, etc. And that really helped me figure out a lot to do with my identity too. So ended up coming out and kind of living openly as a queer woman from about the age of 18. I didn't come out as trans until I was 27, 
28-ish. Um, it was February 2020, so a brilliant time to choose to make a, a big announcement to the world. So there's a lot of other things going on at that point. And that was when I started using the name Max. I changed my pronouns to they, them, and then eventually to they, he. And I'd had quite a lot of, I guess, life experience before that. And I think something that's so interesting about the popular trans narrative is that we see either that someone comes out very young so from a very early point of consciousness they're saying no i'm in the wrong body this isn't right for me i'm not a boy i'm a girl etc or we see people coming out much later in life and caitlin jenner is a lot of the reference points that people have for this either way the context is the same of this idea of always knowing this idea of an in the wrong body and everything is wrong and i'm just uncomfortable i didn't have that and I think it's really important to talk about that because we often well-intentioned, we expect people to have that narrative in order to be able to talk about their transness. We expect people to have always known to be a thousand percent sure to be almost, you know, suicidal and at points definitely suicidal because we're so uncomfortable. And as much as that is true and a valid story for a lot of people, I think there's also a lot of people like me who did not have that. I had a rough sense of unease for most of my life, but I had no idea why. I had no idea that gender identity was in any way something you could change or choose or object to. It was just a given in my life. So one of the reasons why it took me as an adult quite a long time to come to terms with who I was was because I had no idea that that option existed. If I could go back and find 15-year-old Max and be like, hey, babes, this is what a trans person is, and you can do this if you want to, and this is something that is okay, and you'll be happy, and you'll be fine. If I could do that, I would, and I'm pretty sure that little Max would be like, that's me. However, nobody did say that to me. Nobody even said this is what a trans person is. So instead, I had this much longer combination of kind of the internet and TV and books and my own consciousness as a person, which came to me realizing in my late 20s, actually, this is who I want to be. With my daddy, I've got two daughters, mm. one who said she always knew and the other one who said that she didn't know, but she knew she felt different. And it was finding, like you say, being able to put it into words that that was the moment at which she mm. was able to realise who she want, who she was. And I think it's really important that, that you know, we do have this mm. other narrative that you're talking about, because I think, I think it means people question you more, don't they? If you, you know, yes. if you haven't always known, well, how do you know you're right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and just, we attach this idea of trauma to transness, which is interesting because we attach the idea of trauma in that, well, you have to be, you know, miserable and unhappy and have experienced all of these things to know that you want to do this. But then, often the anti-trans narrative will flip that on its head and be like, oh, well, you're just traumatized. Mm. And they'll, they'll look for a reason why this is a symptom of something as opposed to an answer. Yeah. One of the reasons why I talk about it in this way is because I want people to know that actually it's very similar to a lot of other things that you may come to terms with in your life, whether that's sexuality, whether that's neurodiversity. I cannot think of anything in my life that I've ever been completely 100% sure of. And I genuinely think if someone says to you that they are 100% sure, I think they're lying because you're mm -hmm. always going to have a nagging doubt. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm getting married in a couple of months. I've got tattoos. 
I've done some pretty permanent things in my life. And yeah, I'm 99% sure it's going to work out, but it might not. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing about transition. We hold trans people with this like, well, you have to be 100% sure because this is permanent. And I'm like, you have kids. Yeah. That's permanent too. I'm getting on my soapbox now, so I'll stop. But yes, I think it's an important part of the narrative. Yeah, no, and I think it's important to hear this because I think, especially for the sort of parents, that there, there can be such fear around it because mm. it's it's such a, a different way of being that perhaps yes. parents haven't considered before. And I think, you know, as a parent, you quite often you want your kids to be sure, yes. which of course is, is, is putting them under quite a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you've said, because obviously, you know, like you said, you've you've done some fairly permanent things. One of the things you've done is is have top surgery, haven't mm-hmm. you? Was that a, a difficult thing to make a decision about, or was that fair, sort of fairly straightforward? You know, was there a fear there, or did you feel sort of more sure about that? So it's interesting, and I think there's a there's a common thread here with this idea of very linear journeys that we expect trans people to have. And most people, the view is, okay, well, you realise you're trans and you come out and you have a surgery, you get hormones, and then you're finished, and then you live your life as another gender. And again, my journey doesn't look like that. I know a lot of people whose journeys didn't look like that. When it comes to, to kind of chest dysphoria and top surgery, the medical term being bilateral mastectomy, when I try and give people context, it's similar to what a cisgender woman might have if she has breast cancer, but with a different kind of reconstruction. So you have a more masculine reconstruction. For me, I knew definitely a few years before I even came out as trans that I was uncomfortable with my chest. I would kind of experiment with binding. I have a very strong memory of saying to my to a long-term girlfriend, who we, we broke up just before I came out, not related to that. But I remember saying to her, if I didn't have to explain it to my parents, I would have top surgery. And I also mm-hmm. remember saying, if I could have my boobs attached with Velcro and just take them on and off when I did and didn't want them, I would also do that. So when I look back on it now, that is an expression of dysphoria, it's an expression of discomfort, but I didn't, I didn't recognize that. And I very much viewed surgery as something quite extreme. And I think as I learned more about myself, as I experimented more with my gender presentation, so with binding, which for those people who don't know, is wearing a kind of compression top similar to a sports bra to reduce the appearance of your chest to give you a more masculine looking chest. I was experimenting with it and then I decided to just wear a binder full time and see if that made me more comfortable. And it did. So I I was sort of learning a lot about myself and it was that process that allowed me to get to, to top surgery. I definitely knew that top surgery was something that I wanted. I think even before I really accepted trans as a comfortable label for myself. And I think this is, it's common in two ways. It's common in that there are people who don't necessarily identify as trans or who don't want to pursue any other form of medical transition who will access top surgery and gender affirming care which is completely valid but I also think there are people who the first thing that they can identify when it comes to that discomfort is something around their chest for me it was that it was so present and so there and I think that 
I've spoken to a lot of trans people about this. It's often the presence of something that shouldn't be there rather than the lack of something that should be there that can spark that dysphoria. So for me, it felt like every time I looked at myself, there was this thing that just did not look right on my body. Like I couldn't dress properly. I didn't feel comfortable. So it was something that I knew I wanted, but I had this real mental block when it came to accessing the services themselves because A, I have ADHD and I'm terribly disorganized, but B, taking that step and saying, I am going to do this and I'm going to spend this money and this time and this energy into that was a lot. So I actually ended up starting hormones before I had surgery. And people will often say to me, well, how did you do the research around surgery? Like, there's so much, et cetera, et cetera. And I tell them that my best friend, who is also a trans man and is autistic, had done all the research on every surgeon in London because we were both living in London and he'd he'd landed on this particular guy Miles Berry and I went yep cool (laughs) and booked him with the same guy (laughs) and it was a hundred percent like I have so much trust in Tay and and not everyone can say that but for me that that was the decision but it it was something I knew I wanted for a very long time and then it became very urgent very quickly did it yeah yeah there was a sudden moment where I was like I need to get going on this yeah yeah. need to do this now yeah yeah I'm really sort of interested in what you said about it's almost like it's not mm. the absence of something it's the mm. presence of something that doesn't really fit and I think that's a really mm. sort of interesting thing for me personally as a mother to actually to sort of think about in relation to my own children and I know you said about your um surgery you said it mm. felt like it was the day my life began is that right mm. yeah yes so what how was it sort of living with this, this was sort of like the, a new start, but also you had your previous life as well. So how do you mm. reconcile the, the two? Almost like this was the start of my life, but then there's also the the past. With great difficulty, I think is the best answer to that. I do not claim to be good at any of this. I'm definitely still navigating it. I have to remind myself that in trans terms, I am a baby. My chest is about 18 months old my existence as Max is is nearly three years old. So, yeah, you have to give yourself a little bit of time to adjust to things. But I think the biggest reason why I would say, you know, that that's the day my life began is because, and everyone can relate to this, you don't realize how much something was impacting you until you no longer have to deal with it. How many times have you come out of periods of like trauma or stress or anxiety and been like, oh my God, I was really ill. Yeah, you know, maybe it's it's more me and not having a, an awareness of my own you know, how I how I deal with things, but coming out the other side yeah. and and not having to think constantly about my dysphoria around my chest, not having to think, well, what can I wear that's going to cover me up? How am I going to manage going on holiday and going to the beach? How am I going to go through mm. a security scanner at the airport? There are so many things that this comes into, and it also gets particularly difficult because pre-testosterone where people would generally gender me as female in a public space they would expect me to have that chest I didn't have top surgery until I'd been on testosterone for a year so people were pretty much gendering me as male which would make me even more scared like what if they see my chest what if they're like okay what are you so there was there was so many things that that came into And waking up and coming to terms with the fact that I'd had top surgery and relaxing into this body, all of those things just fell yes. away. 
And there are so many things that personal things that I enjoy doing that are now so much easier. Like I love clothes and fashion and really, really interested in style. So I'm able to wear so many more things now without thinking about it. I travel a lot. So, you know, being able to go to hot countries and not worry about binding or taping my chest and things like that. It's unending the amount of changes that positive changes that it's brought to my life. I just think it's really interesting and people might not even realise the difficulties of something like travelling. Um, this is something you've talked about on your LinkedIn, isn't it? Is you know, countries or, or states mm. now in the US that you can't travel to because it's not really safe. Mm. And even, like you say, going through body scanners at airports can be a, can be problematic, can't it? Because my, my own daughter had this, this problem quite recently. It's something that people don't even sort of consider mm. How, how sort of set up our world is mm-hmm. in sort of like a binary with binary expectations. But I'm really sort of interested in, you know, did you find it difficult to find your style because you've moved, you know, like you say, in a sense, you're a, you're a baby in a terms baby of tran, your yes. baby trans. Yeah. So, <laughs> so sort of like, I find this with, with people who are very critical of the way transgender women wear, um, what they mm. wear. And you just sort of think they're finding their feet and it's, it's so difficult. I mean, you know, cis people have years of teenagers you know, mm. being a teenager where they can experiment with all these different styles. But we sort of expect trans people to suddenly arrive sort of fully formed and fully fledged, don't we? And, mm. you know, often people are criticised for their clothing choice. I just wondered how, how you found your style and, and how important it was for you to do so. I'm going to answer this in two parts. And the first part is a wider comment on the expectations that we hold trans people to, because we like to be like, oh, you know, People can wear whatever they want, and particularly for, for, for women, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter if a woman wears trousers, has short hair or whatever. And then when it comes to trans people, we seem to forget all of these fairly progressive rules that we put in place. And we say, no, you must look like the most womanly woman who ever existed. And as a trans man, you must be the most masculine and you must be big and strong and wear boring clothes from Sainsbury's and all of those things. And I've always been pretty camp in the way that I present myself. Like, I'm not a hypermasculine person, never have been, never will be, fully fine with it. But it really throws people because they're like, like, a, like people are like, oh, you know, don't, don't you want to look a bit more manly? And I'm like, ew, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Sounds awful. I don't want, you know, I'm going to wear whatever the hell I want. And but I think particularly, you mentioned trans women. And, and this especially comes from other cisgender women who are perpetually held to these really unfair standards of womanhood and these really unfair expectations of, well, I'm not going to respect you as a woman if you don't dress like a woman. We take that and we put that on trans women. Like, what if a trans woman wants to be butch? Also fine. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And trans women themselves have to navigate that. Also, quite often try and pass meaning you know be, be perceived as cisgender in public i hate that word i have a whole thing about it but we do not have time for that they have to try and pass public for their own safety but also try and navigate what makes them feel comfortable what allows them to feel the most themselves it's so complicated and i feel like we have to just release this expectation of gender roles that we put on trans Absolutely. people people love to say to trans people oh, well, you know, don't you want to be more feminine? If you're a woman, then act like a woman. I'm like, what yeah. does that mean? It's very regressive. What does this mean? People yeah. will say to me, it's so regressive and it's so, like, yeah. Victorian. I have people who comment on my Instagram and they're like, we can at least dress like a man. I'm like, what does that mean? Again, like, I'm sorry that I'm wearing a crop top. I like it. I have a cute belly button. It's not my <laughs> fault. 
So speaking of my personal style, I'm very much on a journey with it. About every six months, I'm like, I hate everything I own. And I sell it all and buy new stuff. Um, It's a process. I'm really, again, reminding myself that I'm just a little baby. And, you know, I I very much was a masculine presenting woman. and And that was kind of my shtick was wearing a lot of men's clothes. But as someone who was still perceived as female and still wore kind of makeup and whatever. And then during the earlier stages of transition, I would choose what to wear based 98% 98% on will I be safe? Will I pass? How masculine will this make me look? So very kind of loose, baggy, boxy things, dark colors, etc. Now I'm coming out the other side of it. And part of that is a privilege in that I, I do pass as cis and I am therefore safer in public, but also the privilege in that I can pretty much choose to you know wear whatever I want with the way that my body looks. So I'm now at this next level of I can wear anything. What do I yeah. want to wear? I do a lot of vintage because my, my partner's really into vintage. We wear a lot of kind of like 40 suits and stuff like that if we're going to an event. But a lot of the time when I'm just left to my own devices, it's more like a toddler regression is the only way that I can explain it. So I've got a pair of shorts from a brand called Lazy Oaf, which do these very bright mm. colors. And they've got like silly cartoon hearts all over them and I it is really like how you would dress your toddler like I have matching clothes with my one-year-old niece I love a pair of dungarees I love a bright color I love anything that people would not expect me to wear I really enjoy that I really enjoy that just like you know what if I can change my gender then I can wear whatever I want (laughs) there's a sort of freedom there isn't it it's almost like you've crossed this huge divide I, I don't know how you found coming out because I think sort of, you know, coming out is such a huge thing to do, isn't it? And it, it can, I think especially sort of coming out as, as transgender because um, you risk so much in coming out and having sort of crossed that divide, you know, that, that conquered that particular fear. It must feel as, as though sometimes that you've done what what you can. So, <laughs> you know, what else is as scary as that? I, I don't know what your experience was. Oh, I use that all the time. Mm. I use that, like, if you can come out as trans to your family, get top surgery and speak on a stage about all of your experiences, there's pretty much nothing you can't do. That's my general rule. I'm like, it's kind of hard to worry about hitting rock bottom when you've done stuff like this. Like, I have exposed myself physically and mentally to an insane degree all over the internet by choice. It's very hard to embarrass me yeah. now. It is very hard to make me uncomfortable. And I revel in that. Yeah. I have found so much resilience in this journey. I was talking to a friend who's going through a really bad breakup, but is also coming out as non-binary at the same time. They wanted to get a tattoo to kind of commemorate it. And I said the word resilience because I was like, trans people are so resilient and they are so powerful in that resilience and no we shouldn't live in a world that makes them be that but god does it make us badasses yeah because you cannot mess with trans people and you also and i know you're obviously the parent of of trans people and there'll be parents of trans people listening to this there is nothing more powerful than a parent of a trans person who's supportive because i'm not a parent but i see parents i see that like evolutionary fierceness that I think particularly mothers have about their kids oh, <laughs> if you take that and you put that behind trans rights like oh yeah these Absolutely. people who are on the whole quite like 
chill about most things like they will mess you up if you come for their kids like i the future of trans rights is in the parents who are like actually no oh definitely and i'm i'm so here for that energy i love it i also don't have that from my own parents like then they haven't like rejected me or anything they're just not they're not you know p-flag parents so i really revel in it i remember we were um (laughs) i was talking very loudly on the tube bemoaning some political thing i don't know i can't remember what it was now um mm-hmm. and this little old lady came up to me which came up to my husband actually and, and sort of waved her handbag at my husband because it had a pride badge on it <laughs> and it's sort of like yeah i'm marching on behalf of my granddaughter or you know, it's just fantastic i think you know the grannies are out and um you know indeed my father-in-law and mother-in-law we were so fantastic with my kids. You know, they just sort of said, you tell those kids they're welcome. And, you know, just mm-hmm. that support is so important, I think. And I was going to say, doing, doing this podcast, you know, it, it isn't really something I would have imagined myself doing, but no. <laughs> it's so powerful. My grandparents are huge allies. Yeah, it's the, the trans allyship equivalent of lifting a car off your child having that sudden moment of strength. Like I've spoken to so many people like you who absolutely do not see themselves as activists, do not see themselves as writers or podcasters or whatever, but their child is being threatened and they can find anything within that to, excuse my language, fuck people up who try and challenge them. I love that and I just think it's so powerful and I I genuinely feel privileged that I get to speak to so many parents in that position they come to me to thank me for the work that I do and I'm like no I want to thank you because you remind me of how powerful this can be and I just I I love it it brings me so much joy and speaking of joy as well just to sort of go off on one because this is something else you talk about don't you you say um that we don't Mm. talk enough about gender euphoria and I, I'm so really interested in this because the narrative that's out there is all these poor trans people, false narratives really about transgender people, mm. but saying that, um, you know, you're confused or, you know, confused lesbians, all the rest of it. And then, mm-hmm. oh, well, they've got gender dysphoria, you know, isn't that a problem? But of course, we don't mm. talk about the other side of it, which is the only reason you have gender dysphoria, you know, it's because you aren't living in the way you want to live. So tell me a bit more about gender euphoria and what that's about. So I think all of this sits in in the more corporate phrase of positive representation. And we've already talked a bit about how we kind of have this requirement for trauma for trans people. And I first came across gender euphoria because I read something that absolutely blew my mind, which is that it is very, very difficult to describe gender dysphoria and the things that give you gender dysphoria. It's difficult for trans people to describe it. It's difficult for cis people to describe it. The example I always give is you're in a clothing shop, you pick up a T-shirt, you go to the changing room, you put it on, you go, oh, God, no. You cannot describe that feeling. There's just something that doesn't work about it. You don't like it. You put it back. That is how gender dysphoria feels to me. But euphoria is very specific. Euphoria is looking at myself in the mirror and being like, God, I look great. It's trying on a shirt and thinking, yes, it's it's incredible on me. I can see my top surgery scars and that makes me really happy. It's recognizing yourself. It's seeing yourself. And that kind of caveats into a phrase I use all the time, which is trans joy. And the reason why that's so important is because, as you said, we focus on this negativity. We focus on this discomfort 
we focus on this sadness and that is important but not because we should sympathize it's because we should empathize with that and we should say you know I offer you my empathy and I want to help you feel better about this and trans joy is about looking at the end of this process whether that's coming out whether that's social transition medical transition and looking at how happy and stable and fulfilled the huge majority of trans people are there's i'm not sure what the transition rates are sitting at at the moment to be honest a lot of the research on it is so heavily biased that it's Mm -hmm. really difficult to talk about it i've seen anything from one percent to four percent there's an incredibly low number of people and it's also pretty well recorded that the numbers within those, most of them are detransitioning because of transphobia and how difficult it is to be trans, not because of their experience. So what you've actually got is the huge proportion of people who are taking whatever steps towards transition, towards being their most authentic selves, and are just having a great time, are happy, are joyful, are living their best lives if we put it in a you know a much more kind of sociable responsibility concept who are contributing to society who are good citizens who are good employees who are contributing to a capitalist economy this is something i always like to bring in because like we don't like to talk about the capitalist side of inclusion but if you let a trans person transition they're probably going to do a better job at the end of it because they're not going to be so worried about all the other stuff that's going on there's all of these great things that come out of it. And I always say, if you can listen to me talk about how incredibly happy I am, how I look in the mirror and see myself for the first time in my life and I genuinely feel joy every time I wake up, and the only thing that you can think to say is, but what if you regret it? You're not listening. Hmm. You haven't listened to me. That is based in purely on your own understandings. And there are so many of these stories out there and I'm very lucky I have a platform to talk about it and I shout about it all the time but I think that we have to put it into that context because when we have these negative conversations we just create this cloud of fear and confusion and assumptions around transition you actually mentioned it before a lot of parents want the best for their kids my mum said to me when I came out as gay I just want your life to be easy Mm. because you can recognize as a parent that this is going to be more difficult. And she said the same thing to me when I came out as trans. And I said, I would rather have a harder life and be this person than have a harder life because I'm hiding who I am. Yeah. But we have to see those positive narratives. We have to see people saying, yes, coming out sucked and surgery was expensive and hormones are complicated. And sometimes people are mean to me. A lot of the time people are mean to me on the internet. Would I change any of it? No. Would I do it all again? A hundred times. Because it's that joy that shows people why we have to let people do that. Yeah. So I'm incredibly passionate about it. And everything I do is trying to focus on that. Yeah. I'm trying to help myself feel more joy, be a better person, be a better person to other people. Yeah. This is what helps me do that. This is a yeah. vehicle for that gender euphoria, that trans joy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, in my experience of my own children, you know, I mean, they've been out now for about eight years and I can really see that they are living their best lives. And I think that's a really important thing to say, because I think when you, you know, when your, your children first come out, like your mum said, you know, I, I think this is going to be hard for you. 
but there's not within that that recognition that actually if you don't come out you're just living a hard life in another way aren't you that's the difference it's not as though yeah perhaps you won't meet as much discrimination for example and perhaps you won't have to go through surgery or whatever but you're not being the person that you really are and I'm a great well I mean I'm just a great believer in people being who they really are because I think that is what enables them to be creative you know we talked about capitalism but creative if not productive you know creative and kind and the biggest thing that I've found has changed about my personality when it comes to transition is how much easier and how much more able I am to offer grace and kindness to other people Mm. I was a very angry, uncomfortable person for a really long period of time. And now I look at that person, I just think, God, she was a bitch. Like, I was just, I wasn't a very nice person to be around. You know, I was uncomfortable anyway, but I also, you know, transition didn't solve my problems. It made me able to deal with them. It made me able to explore my ADHD, my anxiety issues. I have OCD. I'm I'm now able to treat that because I have capacity to do so. And I'm really just a lot more chilled out. Mm. You know, very few things bother me anymore because I'm like, I'm happy. Happy people are much better members of society. That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah. So I'm sort of interested in the, uh, you know, you do get a lot of online abuse, don't you? Mm. And um, you did do a brilliant series on a while for a while, which I think you might have stopped. But the, the bigots of LinkedIn, which I, I really think, enjoyed. I think that the bigot community have learned not to mess with me because oh, they right. haven't popped up recently. It comes back occasionally, but yeah, I think I think maybe I've blocked most of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's it like, you know, to be so out and to be working in inclusion and to be somebody like you say you, you you've put yourself out there on on social media. Mm. Sometimes it really sucks. There are days where I'm like, why the F do I do this to myself? Yeah. It's been a steep learning curve the last two years. I've been a a queer person on the internet for a long time, Mm -hmm. but particularly the past two years going freelance, so obviously growing my platform on LinkedIn, but also on Instagram, like nearly 35K-ish. So it's, it's been a steep learning curve. I've had to teach myself a few uh, boundaries or coping mechanisms. One of them I came up with recently, which is that people expect you, if you have a platform, to accept or allow a level of nastiness, I guess. And I think it's it's a, a reflection of if you think about very, very famous people and paparazzi, most people will be like, oh, well, you know, you're famous, so you have to deal with it. You deserve it. I think people apply that to influencers and content creators really unfairly because A, I'm not Kim Kardashian and B, I don't have to accept abuse and hatred from people just because I have a platform. Yeah. So the way that I'm currently dealing with it is I see my spaces on the internet as my house. Mm-hmm. So if I wouldn't let you come into my house and speak to me the way you're speaking to me, I'm not going to let you do it on the internet. Yeah. Instagram and LinkedIn haven't promised you free speech. I haven't promised you free speech. And a lot of the time it isn't free speech, it's hate speech. Yeah. But I don't have to listen to this. I don't have to engage. I don't have to respond to you. I can just block you. Yeah. Obviously, in order to do that, I do have to read it, which is sometimes a lot. Sometimes I will use it as a learning point, which I do really like to do, particularly on LinkedIn, particularly if it's something that is kind of unintentionally offensive yeah. or or really shows some of the 
misinformation that might be being shared about my community but I have very strong boundaries with online abuse and I on the whole have become very resilient to it I don't think it's something that I want to be resilient to but unfortunately I have to be the one thing I do find really really difficult is when I get um abuse or or you know trolling or whatever from people within the community so within the lgbtq community there are a vocal minority of people who are very anti-trans yeah and and like to come for me and i i find that quite difficult because a part of me really empathizes with their fear and a part of really really empathizes with their journey because i've had that too mm-hmm. and i i see someone who is so hurt by what they have been through that they see the answer as attacking another member of their community and they don't necessarily feel that aligning our fights is actually the way to approach it and instead they they see it as very separate and they see it as a kind of you know if if you're allowed your rights that takes away from mine and I the internalized homophobia that that comes within that makes me so incredibly sad and I find it a lot harder to challenge those views because I understand the pain from where they're coming from. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I accept it, but I, I do find it difficult. And I also find it difficult when I, on occasion, receive hatred or abuse from people within the trans community. Because, again, that that internalization of what we're told about ourselves, that internalized transphobia, you know, there'll be conversations about transmedicalism, so whether or not it's valid if you're a trans person who doesn't medically transition, all of these things, yeah. or you know, people coming for me about the work I do and saying I'm profiting off trans lives and things like that. I've had some really horrible things said to me, and that's that's really painful because that's people within my community, and yeah. part of me thinks well, you should know better. But then I also, again, try and extrapolate it out into this. I know where this is coming from. I know the pain that this yeah. is coming from I understand internalized transphobia because I am constantly working not to do that yeah it's a process there are days where I delete my Instagram app and I go outside and I breathe and there are days when I absolutely take people down and post screenshots for everyone else to enjoy it varies a lot mm-hmm. it's it's a yeah. lot and and sometimes I do have to take a step back and just be like this is a lot it's a yeah. it's a lot of emotion for sure yeah yeah so just to sort of um, to move on, do you think? Because uh, the other thing that obviously is part of who you are is that you've got ADHD. Do you think that has a part in you being queer, or you know, is it just? Because I know this is something that uh, can be levelled against people. Oh God, people just love to find any excuse to be like, "You're not really who you say you are," based on zero information. Yeah, I think there are some real intersections between queerness and neurodiversity, and. I say this as someone who's very much speaking from their own experiences. Like a lot of things in the trans universe, there are very limited levels of research into a lot of these topics. So it's really hard to speak about them on a a scientific level. For me, personally, I think that there's a lot of people who are trans or queer and also on the neurodivergent spectrum. I think that is because of the level of introspection that comes from having either one of those things. I know plenty of people who have gone from I'm queer and now I think I might have ADHD or be autistic or the other way around. And for me, it's because all of those identifiers, all of those parts of us that are very intrinsic require a lot of self 
introspection, a lot of understanding of ourselves, a lot of reflection on who we are, what we do, how we perceive things, how our brains work. So I think that if you are neurodivergent or if you are LGBTQ, you're already quite used to looking at yourself with that external gaze and understanding that you might be different. So I think that that, there's, there's some stat that's like you're three times more likely to question your gender identity if you're autistic and that makes sense to me because my understanding of autism from you know my friends and the research I've done is that you pretty much question every societal norm around you so it doesn't seem surprising that someone's questioning gender identity and gender roles the other thing that there's some emerging research into is the connection between trauma and neurodiversity effectively that experiencing levels of trauma particularly in younger life will result in a higher likelihood that you might experience issues with ADHD or autism and brain development later in life again this is still an emerging field but it doesn't surprise me because the LGBTQ community has huge amounts of trauma particularly as younger people and I'm not just talking about people who maybe come out and have terrible experiences with their parents become homeless I'm talking about if you can call it lighter trauma you know, the experience of growing up and knowing that you're different, the experience yeah. of growing up and you know, maybe being bullied or bullied. not feeling welcome, that's all trauma too. My partner had a, a fairly abusive childhood and is now exploring an ADHD diagnosis. From what we know about deeply seated trauma, it seems unsurprising that she's now experiencing these issues. So I think there's a huge amount of crossover. And the other thing that's really interesting when I look at it from my perspective is how similar the UK trans and neurodiversity journeys are in terms of misdiagnosis, in terms of lack of support from healthcare, in terms of how much self-advocacy you have to have in order to be treated correctly, in order to have your accommodations. Yeah, you know, I'm only just learning to request accommodations for my ADHD. And part of the reason that I've been able to do that is because I've had to learn to advocate for myself as a trans person. So I think there are so many crossovers and I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the research come out and understanding a bit more about it. I just hope that it isn't misused by the people who want to see it as a, oh, well, you're just this or you're just that or you're just traumatized. Because what it comes down to Take all the labels off it. These people are struggling. They're finding it difficult to participate in their jobs, to socialize, to be healthy physically and mentally. We need to help them regardless of what label might be put on them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're sort of reaching the end of our time together. So Max, it's just been so, so good to talk to you and hear your perspective on stuff. It's been really helpful. I'm sure it'll help lots of my listeners as well, lots of parents who... I hope so often you know come come to the podcast having just been told that their their child is transgender and, and wanting to know more and so it's it's so good to hear from from other transgender people what their journey's been like so thank you very very much for coming along and finally where can people find you <laughs> uh linkedin max siegel instagram at their queer that's pretty much it. If you put in Maxi or, or their queer on Google, it should show up if my SEO is working. And I also run a company called Trans And, which is a trans inclusion consultancy. We produce content, we have speakers, we do everything under the sun at the, at the moment. Still working on narrowing that one down. <laughs> 
<laughs> it'll come and yeah it's more that it should be more exciting things to hear from from you about in the future as well so thank you very much max it's been brilliant to speak to you i hope we get to speak to you again and uh, thank you very much for coming thanks jay it's often said that parents simply want their children to be happy one of the surprising changes that you face as a parent of transgender children is that you can no longer ignore the issue of safety for many transgender people in society today it isn't safe to fully express themselves. And I think Max's willingness to share themselves and take the flack for it is exemplary. As a parent, you want your child to be happy and safe. But is that possible? What price is society paying for the fear around transgender issues? I feel sad that people are unable to be themselves, to express themselves creatively and to be productive in society. 